What happens if you can't afford veterinary care? Do you give up on your dog? Do you hope that their ailment will go away on its own so that you can afford groceries? Do you put the dog down so that they're no longer in pain? There are no easy answers, but there is one organization that is doing something that is groundbreaking. Hello, I'm James Jacobson. Welcome to The Long Leash. To start the show today, I'd like to ask you a question and see if you agree or disagree with this statement. If someone can't pay for vet bills, they simply shouldn't have a pet. Many people share that sentiment. For those that do, our guest today just might change some minds. Dr. Michael Blackwell has held a long and distinguished career in public health. He has been the Dean of the College of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Tennessee. He was the Chief of Staff in the Office of the Surgeon General of the United States. He was Deputy Director for the Center for Veterinary Medicine at the FDA, and he was Chief Veterinary Officer at the U.S. Public Health Service. During his 23 years of active duty, he achieved the rank of Assistant Surgeon General, Rear Admiral of the U.S. Public Health Service Commissioned Corps. Dr. Blackwell currently serves as the Director of the Program for Pet Health Equity at the University of Tennessee, and he is the founder of Align Care Health. Align Care is a One Health interprofessional system that is meant to improve access to veterinary care for families with limited means. Dr. Blackwell believes that in order to improve the health outcomes of people, you must also include the health of their pets in that equation. They are one and the same sometimes, and the emotional connections that we have to our pets well, those connections directly affect our mental and our physical health. But the cost of vet care can be a serious barrier for families with limited means. The tragic reality is that some families lose a beloved pet simply because they cannot afford the cost of veterinary treatment. What can be done? Well, Dr. Blackwell is passionately working towards a solution with Align Care. Dr. Michael Blackwell, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Jim. I appreciate the opportunity to visit with you and uh, share with your audience. You have a long and distinguished career in public health, but what I appreciate is over the last few years, you have morphed to that. And there have been these transitions, these changes of callings that I want to get into, but you have changed that to focus on the economic viability of vet care for so many people who just can't afford it. Tell us a little bit about that. What was the thinking and, and what are you doing with the line care? Sure. Well, my life has been lived in chapters which were shaped around callings. Mm -hmm. In other words, I'm not one of those people who laid out a full career early in the day and then everything just worked out that way. No, I'm uh, mission-driven, and um, my career, all of those opportunities came together in a way to enable me to really focus on access to veterinary care. You know, I grew up in a veterinary practice. My dad was a general practitioner in Oklahoma. So from very early in life, I, I grew accustomed to seeing euthanasias performed. I don't know how many of those we economic euthanasias versus terminal problems that needed to be handled. But over time and in my own practices, I'm very much exposed to that. And like many veterinarians, most of us find ways to shield our soul mm. from these procedures. And we objectify those procedures and we rationalize the procedure. And that's a good thing. But there was a day that came along in 2012 where uh, a veteran's, Vietnam veteran's dog was euthanized over a treatable medical condition, but he didn't have the funds to take care of that problem. It was at a shelter. What was the condition? The dog had been injured. The dog actually had been uh, shot by an animal control officer who went into the backyard of home. And the dog was approaching this officer, uh, barking and, you know, doing what he's supposed to do. Mm. So as defending his home, the officer, I think, panicked. I wasn't there to see it, but the officer ended up shooting the dog. A bullet went in over the left eyebrow and exited behind the right ear, so it didn't penetrate the cranium. 
just sub-cue in and out. Mm-hmm. So it was a survivable injury, but a serious one. And again, the dog uh, was euthanized. Now, why did that strike me so much on that day? Well, I'm in the presence of this gentleman who is destroyed by what's going on, and his story is what really capped this. He, a few years earlier, had suffered a stroke. And this was not just the dog. This was his constant companion. And by his words, the, the reason he was able to get back on his feet and get back, you know, to living life. And it felt all wrong on that day that euthanasia would be the outcome. And especially for an American citizen who has served our society in such a special way, meaning our military, our teachers, our public servants. There's just a whole slew, and many don't make a whole lot of money. So it was that day that I changed. I, I, I no longer saw economic euthanasia in the same way, and that started me on the mission that I am on now, which was to, first of all, understand the problem. And so we conducted a national study. It was reported on in December 2018. That report is available to be downloaded, no charge, from our website. We'll put a link to that report because I have read it. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Well, we wanted to understand what are the barriers that pet owners are facing and frankly, how large is the problem? And basically what we learned was that 28%, so more than one out of four families reported a barrier to veterinary care in the previous two-year period. And there were multiple reasons and there were other barriers that they also experienced. But the overwhelming one was a lack of ability to pay for the care. That was not a surprise finding. We expected that, but it was clearly the overwhelming reason. Now, this is a good time to just point out the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room has been with us a while, and the elephant says, well, if you can't pay for veterinary care, you probably shouldn't have a pet. Mm. And, you know, I understand there's some logic in that, but the stark reality is, Jim, Also in 2018, we estimated about 29 million dogs and cats living in households that participate in the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, formerly called Food Stamp Program. Food Stamps. We used that index because we felt that if you qualify for that program, you probably are not going into veterinary practices, paying for much veterinary care. Mm -hmm. And so looking at Tens of millions of dogs and cats, not even factoring in their other companions with the families, uh, non-human companions. Tens of millions of dogs and cats underserved by our current system. Being the United States of America, there should not be a real excuse for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, for me, it meant this was a very challenging, but a very doable problem to uh, solve. And that's the work we've been engaged in for the last five years. Well, one of the things that is so striking about your background is that as a veterinarian who's been involved and will get into your public service career at at the Surgeon General's office, but you really understand this whole space of what is often called one medicine or one health and the connection that people have, in this case, the people who are recipients of formerly known as food stamps, have with their pets, the psychological benefits. Talk about that, because I think that is what's striking about your <laughs> about your background, is that you kind of fold all of these together. Well, thank you. Uh, let's first of all remind ourselves, um, what is One Health? It's a new paradigm. It basically says that in order to improve health outcomes, let's say for population people, One needs to also factor in animals and their shared environment. So all three of these need to be looked at and considered when trying to improve the health outcomes for humans. Now, we say, well, what about the animals? Well, it starts with the fact that 65% of the infectious diseases that humans can get are zoonotic, meaning it's a microbe that the pet or some other animal can pass on to the human. So, and then there are many more of the animals in our environment than there are humans. So, 
it makes sense that, yeah, if I'm going to improve the health outcomes for humans, what about the animals? How are the animals impacting their health outcome? How about the environmental space? Not just air and water quality, but other shared parts of, of their reality. We did our work based on that principle, but in this case, we're trying to improve the health outcomes for the pets. And one health says, well, you got to factor in people. And you know what? If we wanted to find a good explanation for why one health is needed as a, an approach, it's this. Because it turns out the pets are not presenting the barriers to veterinary care. The barriers are related to the people, their economic reality, and so on and so forth. And so for us who are trying to reach these pets with health care, how in the world do we do that effectively in isolation of the people? Now, this is especially true when we go down the socioeconomic ladder and we get to the low income end of the spectrum. So our program, our work in building the line care by design, a priori, involved a real focus on the pets people. The pets people. Yeah. I like that. The pets people. Yeah, it's their people, their family. They, yeah, no, I love it. I just yeah. think that, that that's 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 alliterative and fun. Okay, so you focused on human side of these animals. Yeah, because no matter what we veterinarians are capable of doing as far as clinical care, if the client can't pay for the services, the services are not available. Mm-hmm. There's a barrier. And by the way, veterinarians didn't create this problem the cost of care have continued to go up. But veterinarians are not among those getting wealth by practicing veterinary medicine. It's the cost of delivering health care. Those costs are what's going up. And there's one other uh, thing about our industry that is part of the problem, and that is we are still a cash basis industry. Mm. Let's get this. Let's capture this. So... We're purporting to have citizens pay for health care out of their pocket. Mm -hmm. Now, we know that doesn't work on the human side. Almost nobody does that. Everybody is dependent upon some third-party system. We've never built such systems nationally for veterinary medicine. So now is definitely the time because more and more families, as we speak, are unable to pay for veterinary care up and into the middle class even. And that's where we're starting to see in the United States insurance companies coming in to help be that third party in many cases. Now, obviously, adoption of insurance in the U.S. is significantly less or significantly lags other countries like Great Britain, where it's a lot more common. Yeah. Pet insurance has been around for a few decades. And right now in 2022, we still probably have no more than around 3% of annual transactions involving insurance. Mm -hmm. In contrast to Europe, where you're getting into numbers like 30 40%, certainly into the 30s. Mm -hmm. So we ask ourselves, well, why is there such a low utilization of pet health insurance? I'm sure there are multiple reasons, but I can tell you this. For those who have limited income, a particular model has been the problem, and that model is the reimbursement model which says you can have an insurance policy with our company and we'll do coverage, but you got to go in and pay for that care and then file a claim with us. Get reimbursed. But that's not even an option for many of our families. That's the problem. They can't pay for that care. I am encouraged, though, that I think the pet health insurance industry, they see what's happening. They know there's a problem. And I know some are concerned about that and want to do something about it. We need better policies, in other words. And then utilization will go up. Eventually, we'll see an insurance system that may more model what what humans have, what we have. When we go to the doctor, we pay a modest copay. Certain things are covered. Certain things are not covered. But we know that going in versus the big surprise of that'll be $800 today, please. And you can put it on your credit card or use this ridiculously expensive 20% plus interest rate. Bingo. Which I won't mention the name of that company, but there are some people who are very, some entities and some businesses that have made it even more expensive. Bingo. Uh, So when we think about access to veterinary care and we ask ourselves, well, which industries 
are critical to this. Mm-hmm. Well, clearly, veterinary medicine is important because we're providing those medical services. But the pet health insurance industry and the finance industry also have a role here in improving availability of services for American families. There are some other industries we could throw in there, but those would be the three primary ones that I would mention. So, yes, you talk about getting a double whammy. You already struggle financially because pay structures in our country and so forth. And you can work, (laughs) interestingly, you can work full-time job for a corporation and still rely on the public to feed you through the food stamp program because what you get paid is so low. That's something to think about. Mm -hmm. What's wrong with that picture? That's another subsidy, by the way, I think that corporations enjoy. And we as a society are going to have to grapple with if that's okay. They work for you and you get your profits, but we feed them. And most are not in that situation, but that's just more of a poignant point to be made because there, there are some in that status, in that category. But um, what our work has been about is bringing about alignments, better alignments. We take the position that because we're the United States of America, there are lots of resources. There are lots of capabilities found amongst diverse groups and industries. But those resources and capabilities are not aligned properly to reach the families that are underserved. And so we're working hard to bring about those alignments so that we're more effective and more efficient even as a nation in bringing about that care. Now, inherent in this is at the end of the day, some families won't be able to pay the full bill. Hmm. And while that may seem strange to some, well, point me to how many families can pay the whole medical bill on the human side. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then we get back to the elephant. Well, then maybe they shouldn't have a pet. Well, do you know about the benefits that humans derive from these relationships? They're both physical and mental health benefits. And when we think of those with the least, it appears anecdotally because we've not done the scientific study, although we're working toward that, they may be more dependent upon that relationship to safeguard their quality of life and health than, let's say, a a middle-class family, because a middle-class family has many other options to bring joy to their lives and security and so forth. So what we do have to do in our work, Jim, is talk about suspending judgment, overcoming biases that exist about those people, Because the largest proportion of those people who are struggling actually work. They're not sitting around looking for handouts, waiting for the government to take care of them. They work in service industries like food, retail, veterinary medicine, animal welfare, construction, agriculture. These industries that we all depend upon, that's where these folks are working. And I mentioned the school teachers. You know, folks who are contributing in special ways, and we we want to say to them, you don't deserve the relationship? Mm. That one's problematic. And just to put a face on this, when you're going back to that first experience you had, that there was the genesis of this, that veteran who had a stroke was really emotionally connected to his dog. Absolutely. And so having to put his dog down probably did not help his mental health or his outcome as, and he's a veteran, as you point out. Yeah. So I don't know what became of him, but I think about him all the time. mm -hmm. And I hope that his life went on without much difficulty, but he was traumatized in that moment. He was destroyed in that moment. I see the image in my, in my head all the time as he stood there in his grief. So let's talk about aligned care. Again, probably the genesis of that is you've used the word aligned. So what is it and how can some person who's listening to our podcast benefit from what you're doing there? Okay, so aligned care is a One Health healthcare system. It's actually the first. There are micro versions of aligned care, but basically it is a system that's designed to a priori consider the reality of the family when thinking about providing veterinary care. And if that family's economic reality is such that 
they're not going to be able to go in and pay for that care. Then we get into discussions about subsidizing, having a third party involved. It is not insurance, but it is subsidized health care. Basically, families qualified by being already on some form of public assistance. Now, that's where the program is today. Through time, that's going to be expanded. But right now, to qualify, you have to already have shown demonstrated need in a public assistance program. We're not particular about which one. Take, for example, Head Start. Mm-hmm. One wouldn't say, wouldn't think of that one necessarily. But if you qualify for Head Start, you're not walking into veterinary practices paying for much veterinary mm-hmm. care. Uh, or it could be housing that you've qualified for. And I know it seems unfair to those in the lower middle class who are also struggling. Uh, these people are already getting help. You don't want to be in their shoes, trust me. Right. They're not as well off as you are at the end of the day. And so, at any rate, that's how you qualify. And then who is the third party? If the money is not coming from insurance, where is the money coming from? Yeah, that's the heart of the matter. The money comes from the community. Now, what we've done up to now is acquired grants. The program for pet health equity acquired multiple grants to pay for veterinary care while we tested aligned care. The testing technically ended in December of last year, but it has really extended into December of this year. We tested aligned care in multiple communities using that grant money. So it was limited in scope. Families got enrolled, and then that veterinary care was subsidized out of those grant funds. That's not a sustainable model. The sustainable model and where we start to align in a very, very important way is what resources exist within the communities where these folks live. So you go to almost any community in the country, and there are nonprofit as well as for-profit organizations that exist to support families or animal welfare, and yet their resources have not been adequately aligned to subsidize the health care. And so aligned care was intended, therefore, to create that structure, that system, where some of those funds out of the community would be channeled into the community's fund account, and the system then would uh, operate the process of paying the veterinarians the the subsidy. So can you provide an example of a model of how that is working in one of those communities? We can take a number of communities, but I want to mention Los Angeles because Los Angeles started... Big community. Yeah, it's still limited, but Los Angeles started after we ended the pilot. Mm -hmm. They enrolled their first families in March of this year. If you look at the ground level in Los Angeles, what you see is a coalition of partners, a social service agency, veterinary practices, uh, funders, and then a smaller group that continues to make sure things are operating at the community level. And so in March, the social service agency became the portal by which the families were identified and are enrolled. Enrollment involves going on to our website using our software to register. It's a very straightforward, it takes only a few minutes because we didn't want the bureaucracy and the other stuff that these programs are notoriously known for. It's pretty straightforward and simple. What is that website? AlignCareHealth.org. .org. And we'll put the link in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. That's AlignCareHealth.org. If the people can't go on to to AlignCare to register. No, they don't register at AlignCare.org. They register using AlignCare Engage software. So someone out there can only get to that software because they've entered a portal where, and that portal could be an animal welfare organization like a shelter, a veterinary practice, or a social service agency. Those are the more typical places where someone self-identifies that they aren't in need of veterinary care and need some help, some assistance. Mm -hmm. They were given that link. If they don't know how to use a computer or don't have that capability, we have trained people in the community to assist with that enrollment, again, which takes just a few minutes. Once they're enrolled, then they get to choose the practice they want to go to. And that's all in the software that they're doing this. 
This is proprietary software, so it's not generally available. We've got communities where there's one practice, and so there's no choice there. You go to the one practice. So is there like an app? If you qualify, you can say, my dog is, something's wrong, and then I open the app, and then I can go to this vet clinic or vet clinics that are part of the network and bring my dog in there? Yeah, but you start at the community level. You don't come to us. No, I get it. Okay, so you, once you're in the system and you have access to that resource. You can't even get in the system except at the local level. Right. So the way it will look, Jim, and this is more common, a person has shown up at a practice that's an, an enrolled provider in the system. Mm-hmm. And we can come back to the veterinary side of this. The practice and talking with the client comes to appreciate, well, this person is not able to pay the bill, but looks like they may qualify. So it's at that point that they are given the information to link to our our system. Mm -hmm. And they are required to upload credentials, uh, ID, indicating, showing that they are, in fact, enrolled in public assistance. And why do we do that? Because that practice that's going to assist them, that practice that's an enrolled provider, has agreed to discount their fees by 20%. Mm. Now, if they're a low-cost nonprofit, those discounts don't kick in. But this is one reason we talk about spreading the cost. So it's not just a family paying the bill. It's the family. It's the veterinary practice. It's the community. Let me break that down. So the family is enrolled. The practice has provided the medical care. With a 20% discount, they're going to then present the bill. The family is responsible for a 20% co-payment of what's due, and then the balance is invoiced to the Aligned Care Fund. And we manage those funds on behalf of the community. Communities don't have to build a system. They don't have to figure out the policies and procedures. That's what we've been at for more than four years. So um, so just to do the math or the mm-hmm. maths, if you're overseas, let's use a fictitious number of $100, which is not going to go very far. So it's a $100 bill. They discount it to $80. Then 20% of that 80, so about $16, if I'm doing my math on the top of my head, is something that would be the effectively what we would call the copay. Yes. And then the balance of that, $64, this is a math show now, then is sent to align care and through that funds to pay the vet clinics directly. Yes. That veterinary practice that's enrolled, Mm -hmm. actually part of that enrollment is the training they get in using the software. So they invoice the fund and then they're paid electronically. And it's not a 30 day net. It's much shorter period than that. So effectively the dog lover got a $16 vet visit that would have cost a hundred dollars if this weren't around. That's right. So 16% of what they would have had to pay. Yeah. And the only way that could happen is because there were other parties paying that bill. Now, in practice, there are more parties than the three. Mm -hmm. Because animal welfare organizations are kicking in money and so are social service agencies. We have instances of five different parties actually trying to cover that bill. So this is truly spreading those costs among multiple parties. What are some examples of those organizations, say in L.A. County? So the social service agency that is the primary portal for families to that show up and ultimately get enrolled, they have provided transportation to the veterinary practice, and that doesn't factor into the vet bill so much. But in some cases, in fact, in most cases up to now, they have paid the 20% co-payment for the family because What Los Angeles decided to do, because of their reality out there, they decided to start with unsheltered families. Mm. So you've got individuals who are homeless. This agency has been serving that population for 20-something years. And so part of their mission now is to cover the 20% copayment. And you're like, well, that's real generous. No, no, no. Before, they were trying to pay the whole bill. Mm. So they have benefited by being in a coalition, in a partnership. A lot of hands make the work a lot lighter. A lot of folks contributing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Let me talk about our my colleagues just a little bit. Mm-hmm. I want to start here. We are not a very good 
helaise with our mental emotional health and multiple reasons for that. But we do know also that veterinarians increasingly are being presented with this situation of a client in crisis. Now, we understand human emotion well enough to know somebody is begging and pleading for your help, for someone they love. Mm-hmm. And you have these, the knowledge, the skills, the capability to help, but you don't help over money. Mm-hmm. See, veterinarians, and I'm stereotyping here a bit, but I've been in a profession my whole life. Most of us are not built to make those decisions day in and day out where we refuse to help in a way that we can help because of money. Mm-hmm. It stinks. We'd rather not be in that situation. So my heart goes out to my colleagues who are doing the best they can. Veterinarians have historically reduced fees and changed fees in order to try to help. But they're businesses, and they can only do so much of that. So, in other words, is that the solution, that we just lean on the veterinary practices to cut their fees? No, no, no. You're going to need more at the table than that because the veterinarians can only do so much. We didn't even know if the 20% was going to be palatable, but it turns out it was palatable. And we have practices that have discounted more than 20%. That's their choice. And not every service is discounted or every product. Prescription foods almost are never discounted. So they get to choose in their business model to what degree they can help and how many people they can help. They don't sign a contract to help a specific number of people. Now, you may have heard this said before, but when we start talking about the population that we are helping at this stage, there's more than just limited money that comes with them. Sometimes there are language barriers. Sometimes there are comprehension barriers, there are transportation barriers, there are barriers associated with compliance, you know, uh, you got to do this at home type of thing. And so now enters that veterinary social work factor in Align Cure. You know, we shield these veterinary practices from a lot of that because if the client is struggling to understand, struggling to do whatever, then our social workers can enter in that picture, not get between the doctor and the patient, but certainly help facilitate dialogue and so forth. So going back to who helps, yes, the social service agency, Downtown Dog Rescue in Los Angeles, pays the co-payment for many of those families, as well as provide transportation to the veterinarian. We have had animal welfare organizations, shelters. They have a grant, Cal, Fund Account, Good Sam, Angel Fund Account, They have been dipping into their funds, trying to pay the whole bill. And by the way, practices struggle to work with them because every case is a new negotiation, negotiating that treatment (laughs) and that payment. Align Care got rid of all of that. There is no negotiating fees. It's the practice's fee schedule. And so they know what they're going to get paid before they even do the services. So there's not an unknown. It removes a lot of the psychological slash business motivations or or concerns that a vet clinic has to deal with. And this was important. This was important because we started with the position, which is strongly held. Veterinarians want to help. Veterinarians care. Veterinarians don't want to see people turned away or euthanize over treatable problems. But are in a tough situation because they can only do so much right. and stay in business. You know, it can only give away so much. So, yeah, we, we built Align Care being sensitive to what it would take to incentivize these private for-profit practices to help. Now, that's in contrast to a model that says, no, let's just build a bunch of nonprofit practices, and the nonprofits are going to have a different pricing scheme and so forth. Well, you, when you do that, you increase the cost for everybody because now the practices have to up their fees even more because the clientele maybe has dropped <laughs> and their the overhead is still there. You know, you see what I'm saying? So it's a much more sustainable model from... We think. Okay. So you, you touched on mental health a moment, and I don't think we fully got into that, but I think where you were going with that was the mental health of the veterinarians who didn't go into this to sit down and negotiate. They went into veterinary medicine, not to make a lot of money as a vet or a business owner, but to care for animals. 
and talk a little bit about that because we've talked on this show and others on Dog Podcast Network about the you know not one more vet, the high suicide rates, the high anguish that veterinarians experience. But I don't think we've ever really addressed it from the standpoint of the financial side and how they have to um, say no. Yeah. So let's start with the fact that my focus is on an individual, a veterinarian. Mm -hmm. You can put whosoever face you want to put on that. We start with the stressors of life and death decision-making. Just that by itself is a context that is inescapable. That your, your people are entrusting you with the life of someone they love. And that's the starting place. Most are in small businesses called veterinary practices. And it's known that there's not a lot of bandwidth in these practices, meaning the pricing of services very closely reflect what it takes to provide those services. Yes, profits are built in, but point me to all the veterinarians getting really, really wealthy, <laughs> you know, because of this. And so then you add then the business challenges, and it's this typical stuff, managing personnel, managing supplies and inventories, managing the process of working with the public. And oh, by the way, the public sometimes show up in rare form. Why? Because they're in crisis. They're anxious. They're, they're emotionally connected to this blood exactly. that is dripping out of, that is gushing out of their dog when they come in. They don't actually, and so they may not learn all, the, all their polite words. Yeah, yeah. When we humans are in that state, we're not necessarily the most diplomatic. So, <laughs> and just a whole combination of stressors involved with this work. Mm -hmm. I didn't even get into you got this big educational debt to service and. And then, oh, they got to live somewhere. There's Marius. There's, you know, there's fan. So when, when I look at the reality of my colleagues today who are in practice, and I've owned and operated two practices, and as I said, I grew up in one, I do have a real appreciation for that world. I'm saying the last thing they need is to be trying to figure out on their own, without any help, how to reach these underserved families. I can tell you right now, I'm not a betting person, and I don't play the lottery, but I guarantee you that one is dead on the right. That's not going to ever work. Veterinarians mm -hmm. are not capable to our size, the limitations of our industry, to address a societal problem of this nature and size all by ourselves. That's why aligning with others through a one health system where that human side was being addressed, don't ask us to be the psychologist. Some of us pride ourselves on that. I'm one of them. You know, I, I like people. I didn't mind those conversations generally. But let me give you a practical example. Our industry is built generally around 15 and 20-minute appointment windows. Gosh, yes. When someone is struggling to comprehend or they really, you know, for whatever reason, they want that conversation to go on longer, the veterinarian finds him or herself slow walking toward the door because they've got to get on to that next point. You think that's not stressful or that's not somehow impacting your well-being? You know, you are basically, you know, you're turning the person away in a different way in that sense. You're not serving them because they obviously need more and you're capable of providing it on one level, but on another level, you can't. And so a system that doesn't account for that kind of structure is not built for these times. So again, our social work team, the folks who are supporting the humans become extremely important in some of those instances with managing the client on behalf of the veterinary practice. We see breakdowns in communication and to have a third party intervene. And all you got to do is talk to some of our veterinarians and their stories say it all about the benefit of the Align Care system in um, taking some of these stressors away. This is so well thought out. And as you alluded to earlier, there are these different chapters in your life that I think were formative in how all of this has come to be and is going. I want to take a break right now. But when we come back, Dr. Blackwell, Michael, I would like to have a little conversation about how you got to where you are today and also what you see 
the future of Align Care being. We'll be right back. And now, a message from your dog. Every day with you is like a day at the beach, and I want as many beach days as possible. I want to run and sniff and find a good stick to carry. I want to walk with you, run with you, sleep with you, eat with you. And when I eat with you, I want Everpup. It infuses any food you give me with health and life and vibrancy. I can feel it. It's a strange thing to do, sprinkle this powder on my food, but I wouldn't have it any other way. My time with you is precious and irreplaceable, and I'm thrilled to be with you for as long as possible. Here's to puppy playtime and senior snoozes. <laughs> no matter how old I get, I want my ever pup. It just makes me feel good in this life and the next, and the next, and the next. I am so grateful to be your dog and for the ever pup you give me. So now that you know what your dog wants, get Everpup, the ultimate dog supplement. Everpup is available in select pet shops and on Amazon. But to get the best price possible, join the Everpup Club at everpupclub.com, where you'll get your first jar for just $8 with free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Go to everpupclub.com and use the discount code DPN. That is everpupclub.com. Everpup every day. We're back with Dr. Michael Blackwell. Before the break, we were talking a little bit about Align Care, and you had talked about these little chapters, these callings that you've had in your life. Let's talk a little bit about that from the time that you grew up with your dad as a veterinarian in Oklahoma to your time in, the, in public service in the Surgeon General's office to where you are today. Yeah, uh, well, thank you for asking. I grew up thinking that I would go to veterinary college and come back and join my dad in practice. However, during my senior year of high school, my dad left practice and joined the faculty at Tuskegee University College of Veterinary Medicine, his alma mater. Mm -hmm. uh, he was in the second class at Tuskegee. So what I ended up doing is going to veterinary college and then returning and opening a practice in the same building that he practiced in. During those years, Jim... And you went to Tuskegee. Yes, I did. Uh, did was I'm that actually, always the plan, or did it help a little bit when Dad, when Dad went to I thought I'd be going to Oklahoma there. State University, okay. I mean, yeah. just and stayed. But uh, when he went back to Tuskegee, that, that was uh, natural. By the way, I am the legacy student. I'm the first, second-generation graduate of Tuskegee, so cool. kind of like that. that, that that's, a, that's an honor. While I was in that practice in Oklahoma, mixed practice doing exactly the kind of practice that he had done, I grew. And that growth led me to understand that I had a calling in life that was bigger or supposed to be more impactful than a small town in Oklahoma uh, doing the work that I was doing. And ultimately decided then I would figure out what I'm supposed to be doing. I had no clue, by the way. I still don't know, maybe. No, I know now. Finally figured it out. Um, I joined the Food and Drug Administration. They had a job opening, and I got selected. And it so was Mr. Blackwell to, goes to Doctor Blackwell goes to Washington. Yes, I didn't see Mr. Smith while I was there, but <laughs> okay. I thought that would be a stepping stone, uh -huh. you know, a place, a holding place to figure things out. What ultimately happened was that was the beginning of a twenty-three-year career in public health. After joining, two years later, I went back to school and earned my Master of Public Health degree. I spent 20 years with Food and Drug Administration, 12 of those years with the Center for Veterinary Medicine, not sequential, but total 12, but eight of those years in the Center for Devices and Radiological Health. In other words, FDA has five centers. One is veterinary medicine, the other four are human. And that one that I ended up in for eight years regulates all medical devices from canes and wheelchairs to artificial hearts to artificial whatever. And so I spent eight years getting a better appreciation of human health care. And during that time, I also became um, 
the chief veterinarian of the United States Public Health Service. That's an appointment by the Surgeon General of the United States, which is a position where you advise the Surgeon General. In this case, I represented veterinary medicine in the office of the Surgeon General. Now, that's different from being the chief of staff that came later. Throughout all those years, I was learning more and more about how our world works, how this country goes about providing health care, how we built and maintain a public health system, which, by the way, works better than what you saw during the height of the COVID. I won't get into that, but mm-hmm. you may want to cut that out. <laughs> no, no, we actually should get into that, but but let's do that separate. So I had these multiple opportunities, both in human health care and veterinary medicine. And each time I changed position, I didn't go looking for the position. I was recruited <laughs> to do the job, yeah. including the chief of staff. You don't apply for that job. Uh, <laughs> the Surgeon General, David Satcher, interviewed two people for that job. And I had been, I'd been under scrutiny for a long time and didn't realize, even before he got there, and I was selected to do that job. Under consideration, probably. Scrutiny sounds sounds too harsh. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, it I was mean, under scrutiny, too. Yeah. yeah. No, I was, I was under consideration for higher roles mm-hmm. because what I often tell people, young people who are thinking about their career and a little anxious about it, if you do a good job and you're a good team member, you get noticed. And... People want you. This is including our minorities, who sometimes wonder if the system just really doesn't want any of us. Well, the almighty dollar or whatever else is is at the heart of why people do things. Yeah, they want good help and do a good job, and uh, the rest kind of takes care of itself. But you got to be a good citizen. you got to be a good team player. I had the combination of personality and other skills that enabled me to stand out in those ways. So I can't claim any credit. I'm not necessarily better than anyone else, but just had a combination that came along at the right time. During that 23 years, I held 11 positions, only applied for the first one. And so even becoming dean at University of Tennessee was uh, a recruitment on the part of the University of Tennessee, which is the reason I left the chief of staff role. Well, let's talk about your 23 years in government service before we go to Tennessee. One of the things that is so common these days and has been common for very long is to sort of poo-poo civil servants. And they're just literally trying to do the least amount of work they can get away with. And they don't distinguish themselves. And I also grew up in Washington in in the 80s and, and stuff like that. And I know that that is not Let's put it this way. That is not always the case. And yes, we have experienced recently a lot of um, transitions and a lot of changes. Talk about the people that you encountered in your career in public health. Some of the most awesome resources this country has, and I'm talking about career of public servants. Mm-hmm. Now, unfortunately, most Americans, when you say government, They are informed by the media, and the media focuses on the political arm of government, and politics are politics. Mm -hmm. The career people are apolitical. I know there are folks who think that FDA and the other agencies are into this whole political realm like Congress. Absolutely far from true. Those people pride themselves on being apolitical, making decisions based on science or based on the law, based on principle. The pride of knowing that you're serving your country is what's infused there. Now, there are some who are just coasting through, Mm -hmm. but we are blessed as a nation to have the public servants that we have. The takeaway for your listeners is this. Most of our government are dedicated Americans who show up every day and give it their all. There's a much smaller part of our government that gets all the media attention, Mm -hmm. and that's our political arm. So please understand, we are blessed as a nation to have the people who serve federal, state, and local levels of government. And it's not because they're getting paid a lot of money relative to what the private sector would pay. 
Okay. Well, I just I wanted to just point that out because you Thank are, you I, I think, an emblematic of what makes public health and your service to public health so impressive. So the one position you did apply for in recent times was this position to go to Tennessee. No. To lead practice in Oklahoma to figure out what my life was supposed to be. And I applied to the FDA. Okay. How did the deanship at Tennessee happen? They recruited me to of course. come to Tennessee. Okay. They, um, they sent out these letters, you know, the search committees, and I'd gotten a letter. It wasn't the first time I'd been contacted, and I wasn't interested in what's a dean? Who's a dean anyway? <laughs> I wasn't. I had a good job. I had a very important job, and the only reason I answered that call, Jim, was still mission, and it was two things, two parts of that mission. The first was late 90s, we were greatly concerned about bioterrorism, The intelligence community was telling us the country is likely to be attacked within five years. So being in the Department of Health and Human Services, we were focused on biologic agents, diseases that could be weaponized. Mm -hmm. And guess which ones are the most of concern? Zoonotic. Zoonotic, yeah. And so speaking with veterinary audiences, including deans, what we had was only three veterinary colleges at that time really focused on public health. And the nation needed the veterinary colleges to refocus on public health. So once I was offered that job, I felt that I either needed to stop talking about it or go in and help. So that was the first reason that I took that position. I was on a mission, and and we did bring public health into the curriculum uh, at Tennessee. So did other colleges after 9-11. You know, people had a wake-up call. The other reason, though, is it was the year 2000, so we were into the 21st century. There had never been a black dean of a majority veterinary college. There had never been a minority. And you know the old saying, once somebody breaks the mold, then it starts to open up. (laughs) So I felt an obligation that, shame on you as this minority, this black guy who's given this opportunity, and you, you don't answer the call because... Somebody needs to do it. And by the way, I said to myself, yeah, eventually somebody else will get selected. And I said, oh, my God, but maybe they would have been trained by Cornell or some other guy. <laughs> oh, no. One Tuskegee to get that. Panner or Cornell? Training. No, we need Tuskegee. I get it. It was personal at that point. A little rivalry among veterinary guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it was personal. I thought my alma mater. Deserve the recognition of having trained that, because uh, 70% of black veterinarians are trained by Tuskegee. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be interesting if the first black dean actually was trained by somebody else? What's <laughs> wrong with that math? <laughs> okay, so you went to Tennessee, and that later evolved to the work that you're doing today with Align Care. Yeah. Okay. I accomplished what I thought I could accomplish during my tenure and um, just under eight years. But during that time, became focused on access to veterinary care, animal welfare in general. Uh, the access to veterinary care became part of that. And to me, that was the work I was called to do because of the need and a set of experiences that I couldn't claim credit for other than the fact I answered calls along the way. And I've, I want to give back. I want to be, be able to wake up each day and believe that I'm contributing to our society just like those public servants we were talking about. See, I lived a whole career waking up every day, believing I was contributing not to my community and the animals in my community, to our nation. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I got over that. Um, I'm still trying to do that. Well, uh, two last questions then. First, what did you learn from the pandemic? Two things I'll mention. It is, I'm very dramatic wake-up call that we're in the age of zoonoses. And veterinary medicine may not be aligned as directly as we need to be with our role in safeguarding our nation. COVID is a zoonosis. It came from somewhere, whatever, even if it came out of a lab. It's a zoonotic disease. Mm -hmm. But when you go back over the last few decades, most of the diseases emerging of concern have been zoonotic. And we can name them West Nile, Lyme, Zika, uh, and it just goes on and on and on. So what I learned was, man, this profession has come of age in a whole different way. We had already come of age around the human 
animal bond, well, we got to get back to our roots. And that's a more dramatic way to point to that importance because dogs and cats can pick up this virus. We still don't know what the outcome will be. But the other thing I learned was it's always bad when you politicize health and health care and public health. Mm. We built a public health system. We had a pandemic response plan in place. If you don't follow these things, if you just get rid of the people who are there, then we see million, a million Americans die. And that pains me to this day that all those lives were lost and those families impacted. And it wasn't supposed to be that way. It didn't have to be that way. You need trained officials making decisions, not politicians. Second, and my last question, I would like you to polish your crystal ball and uh, look into the future and see where this Aligned Care movement is going. Aligned Care will be the nation's one health healthcare system that is built to look at the family holistically. So a one health healthcare system. There may be others to come along, but right now we don't have a competitor. It will be the subsidized healthcare system in part Medicaid for pets, but that morphs into other similar programs on the human side where Medicare would be an example. And what comes with that are these industries that have changed in the way we talked about earlier so that we literally have a healthcare system on the veterinary side. We don't have that today. We have independent proprietorships that loosely are connected. We need a system that's coordinated, that involves more than veterinarians. And I'll, I'll end on that one note. That will be more than veterinarians providing the care because as we speak today, we've got probably 60,000 round number companion animal veterinarians and more than 150,000 dogs and cats. Well, just like 1 million physicians can't treat 340 million Americans alone, <laughs> 60,000 veterinarians can't take care of 150 million dogs and cats. And we haven't even talked about the other numbers in the other pets. So there must be not only a system, there will be, but there will be multiple professionals involved in the delivery of services to the non-human family member. We fought that, I believe, for some obvious reasons. We can't afford to do that. We're going to cause deaths if we maintain a position of resisting the presence of others. And that would include telehealth and all the other things that need to be in part of that mix to ensure services are available. I think the future will look like that. We've got the right generation that will bring that about, millennials. Zs are going to join them. Biggest voting block in the country. They will change. They'll change a lot of these public policies out of the 20th century that don't work well for them in the 20th century. And I'm optimistic about that. Will you come back uh, and talk about this again? Because I think this, oh, this future is this future is really interesting, and and your prognostications I think may come to pass, and we should all learn a little bit more about that so we can make it happen. I will be happy to come back. Thank you for the opportunity to visit with you today and share share my thoughts. I wish you the best with your work, and um, hopefully we'll speak again. Dr. Michael Blackwell, thank you so much for being with us. If you would like to learn more about Align Care and how they help pets and the families, you can visit aligncarehealth.org or find the link in today's show notes. We recently produced an episode on our sister show, which is called Dog Edition, where we do a deep dive into the cost of veterinary care and why it has gotten so high. I encourage you to check out that episode. You can find the link to that in our show notes or on the website dogedition.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please subscribe to the show. We produce new shows weekly, and you can have a listen to our entire back catalog of episodes by going to our website for dogpodcastnetwork.com. That's at dogpodcastnetwork.com, and you can see our entire back catalog of all the shows we produce. Well, that is all we have time for today. I'm James Jacobson. On behalf of all of us here at Dog Podcast Network, I'd like to wish you and your dog a very warm aloha. Does the act of taking paper to pen and writing help to heal a broken heart after your dog dies? 
Sheila Cooperman says yes. She joins us on Dog Cancer Answers to tell her true tale about Tucker, her dog who died last year from lymphoma. Sheila shares how writing about him is helping her heal not only from his loss, but from other heartbreaks as well. That's on Dog Cancer Answers. Get it wherever you get your podcasts and at dogcancer.com slash podcast. <laughs>